Chapter 9 of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 Sentimental Education. Fame and fortune were coming at last. There was no doubt of it in Jimmy's optimistic mind. For years they had lagged with desperately heavy feet, but now they were in sight, slowly approaching, hand in hand. Jimmy made fantastic preparations to welcome them, and wore his most radiant smile. In vain did Aline, with her practical young woman's view of things, point to the exiguity of the price fixed by Her Serene Highness. If that was the advent of fortune, she came in very humble guise, the girl insinuated. Jimmy, with a magnificent sweep of the hand, dismissed such contemptible considerations as present pounds, shillings, and pence. He was going to paint the portrait of the sister of a reigning monarch. Did not Aline see that this might lead to his painting the portrait of the reigning monarch himself? Would not the counterfeit presentment of one crowned head attract the attention of other crowned heads to the successful artist? Did she not see him, then appointed painter in ordinary, to all the emperors, kings, queens, princes, and princesses of Europe? He would star the continent, make a royal progress from court to court, disputed for by potentates and flattered by mighty sovereigns. He grew dithyrambic, a condition in which Aline regarded him as hopelessly impervious to reason. His portrait, he said, would adorn halls of state, and the dreams that he put on canvas, hitherto disregarded by a blind world, would find places of honour in the treasure-houses of the nations. It would be fame for him and fortune for Aline. She should go attired in silk and shod with gold. She should have a stall at the theatre whenever she wanted, and a carriage and pair to fetch her home. She should eat vanilla ices every night, and then she might marry a prince and live happily ever after. "'I don't want to marry a prince or anyone else, dear,' Aline said once, bringing visions down into the light of a common day. "'I just want to go on staying with you.' On another occasion she hinted at his possible espousal of a princess. Again Jimmy dropped from the Empyrean and rubbed his head ruefully. There was only one princess in the world for him, an enthroned personage of radiant beauty who now and then took warm pity on him and admitted him to her friendship, but of whom it were disloyalty worse than all folly to think of. And yet he could not help his heart leaping at the sight of her, or the thrill quivering through him when he saw the rare softness come into her eyes which he and none other had evoked. What he had to give her he could give to no other woman, no other princess. The gift was unoffered. It remained in his own keeping, but consecrated to the divinity. He enshrined it, as many another poor chivalrous wretch has done, in an exquisite sanctuary, making it the symbol of a vague, sweet religion whose secret observances brought consolation. But of all this, not a whisper, not a sign to Aline. When she spoke of marriageable princesses, he explained the rueful rubbing of his head by reference to his unattractive old fogedom and his unfitness for the life of high society. But Aline ought to have her prince— the coming fortune would help to give the girl what was due to her. For himself he cared nothing. Cold mutton and heel of cheese would satisfy him to the end of his days. And fame? In quieter moments he shrugged his shoulders. An artist has a message to deliver to his generation, and how can he deliver it if he cannot sell his pictures? Let him give out to the world what was best in him, and he would be content. Let him but be able to say, I have delivered my message, and that would be fame enough. These were things of the depths. 
The surface of his mood was exuberant, almost childish, delight tempered with whimsical diffidence in his power of comporting himself correctly towards such high personages. For the Duchess, who never did things by halves, and was also determined, as she had said, of not buying her pig in a poke, had conveyed to him the intimation that Her Serene Highness the Princess of Heron Brothbeck would honour him with a visit to his studio on the following Thursday. Jimmy and Aline held long counsel together. What was the proper way to receive a Serene Highness? Jimmy had a vague idea of an awning outside the door and a strip of red baize down the steps and across the pavement. Tony Merriweather, who was called into consultation, suggested, with the flippancy of youth, a brass band and a chorus of maidens to strew flowers, whereat Aline turned her back upon him, and Jimmy, adding pages in fancy dress to hold up the serene train, and a major-domo in a court suit with a wand, encouraged the offender. Aline retired from so futile a discussion, and went on sewing in dignified silence. At last she condescended to throw out her suggestion. "'If I were you, Jimmy, I should get the princess some portraits to look at.' "'God bless my soul!' cried Jimmy, putting down his pipe. "'I never thought of it. Tony, my boy, that child, with the innocence of the dove, combines the wisdom of the original serpent. My brain reels to think what I should be without her. We'll telegraph to all the people that have sat to me, and ask them to send in their portraits by Thursday.' He crossed the studio, and began to rummage among the litter on the long table. Aline asked him what he was looking for. "'Telegram forms. Why haven't we got any? Tony, run round the corners of the post-office like a good boy, and get some.' But Aline checked the execution of this monarchal project. Three portraits would be quite sufficient. Jimmy would have to pick out three ladies of whom he could best ask such a favour, and write them polite little notes, and offer to send a van in the orthodox way to collect the pictures. Jimmy bowed before such sagacity, and wrote the letters. In the course of the week the portraits arrived, and the studio for a whole day became the undisputed kingdom of Aline and a charwoman. The long, untidy table, so dear to Jimmy, was ruthlessly cleared and set in dismaying order. The frame-maker was summoned, and the unsold pictures that had long slumbered sadly on the ground with their faces to the wall were dusted and hung in advantageous lights. The square of Persian carpet, which Jimmy, during an unprotected walk through Regent Street, had once bought for Aline's bedroom, was brought down and spread on the bare boards of the model platform. A few cushions were scattered about the rusty drawing-room suite, and various odds and ends of artist's properties, bits of drapery, screens, old weapons, were brought to light and used for purposes of decoration. So that when Jimmy, who had been banished to the house for the day, returned in the evening, he found a flushed and exhausted damsel awaiting him in a transfigured studio. "'My dear little girl,' he said, touched, "'my dear little girl, it's beautiful! It's magical! But you've tired yourself to death. Why didn't you let me do all this?' "'You would never have done it yourself, Jimmy. You know you wouldn't,' said Aline. "'You would have gone on talking nonsense about red baize strips and flower-girls and pages, "'anything to make those about you laugh and be happy, "'and you would never have thought of showing off what you have to its full advantage.' "'I should never have dreamed of robbing your poor little room of its carpet, dear,' he said. "'They went upstairs for their simple evening meal, and returned as usual to the beloved studio. "'Aline filled Jimmy's pipe.' "'Do you think I dare smoke in all this magnificence?' She laughed and struck a match. "'You did not realise what a lot of beautiful pictures you had, did you?' Mm, "'They make a brave show,' he said, looking round. "'After all, I'm not entirely sorry they've never been sold. I should not like to part with them.' 
No, I did not realise how many there were. In spite of his cheeriness, the last words sounded a note of pathos that caught the girl's sensitive ear. Let us make a tour of inspection, she said. They went the round, pausing long before each picture. He said little, contrary to his habit, for he was wont to descant on his work with playful magniloquence. He saw the years unfold behind him, and disclosed the hopes of long ago yet unfulfilled. What endless months of dreams and thrills and passionate toil hung profitless upon these walls! Things there were, wrought from the depths of his radiant faith in man, plucked from the heart of his suffering, consecrated by the purest visions of his soul. Had Aline been an older woman, a woman who had loved him, lived with him in a wife's intimate communion, instead of being merely the tender-hearted child of his adoption, she would have wept her heart out. For she, alone of mortals, would have got behind such imperfections as there were, and would have seen nothing but a crucifixion of the quivering things torn out of the life of the beloved man. Only vaguely, elusively, did the girl feel this. But even her half-comprehending sympathy was of great comfort. She thought no one in the world could paint like Jimmy, and held in angry contempt a public that could pass him by. She was hotly his advocate, furious at his rejection by hanging committees, miserably disappointed when his pictures came back from exhibitions unsold, or when negotiations with dealers for rights of reproduction fell through. But she was too young to pierce to the heart of the tragedy, and Jimmy was too brave and laughter-loving to show his pain. Other forces, too, had been at work in her development. Recently, her mind had been grappling with the problem of her unpayable debts to him. This silent pilgrimage round the years brought her thoughts instinctively to herself, and the monstrous burden she had been. "'I've been wondering lately, Jimmy dear,' she said at last, "'whether you would not have been more successful if you not had all the worry and expense and responsibility of me.' "'Good Lord!' he cried in simple amazement. "'Whatever are you talking of?' She repeated her apologia, though in less coherent terms. She felt foolish, as a girl does when a carefully prepared expression of feeling falls upon ears which, though inexpressibly dear, are nevertheless not quite comprehending. "'You've had to do pot-boilers,' she said, falling into miserable bathos, "'and I remember the five shillings a dozen landscapes, and you've to spend all that time on your real work. Oh, don't you see what I mean, Jimmy?' She looked up at him pathetically. She was a slight slip of a girl, and he was above the medium height. He smiled, and took her fresh young face between his hands. "'My dear,' he said, "'you're the only successful piece of work I've ever turned out in my life. Please allow me to have some artistic satisfaction, and you have been worth a gold-mine to me.' Thus each was comforted. Jimmy settled down to his pipe and a book. Aline sat over her sewing. The articles to which she devoted her perennial industry were a never-solved mystery to him, and they spent a pleasant evening.' The inevitable topic naturally arose in conversation. They discussed the princess's visit, the great question, how was she to be received? "'The best thing you can do,' said the practical Aline, "'is to go to Mrs. Deering tomorrow and get properly coached.' Jimmy looked at her in admiration. "'You're worth your weight in diamonds,' he said. "'I will.' He carried out his project, and not only did he have the pleasure of finding Connie at home, undisturbed by strange tea-drinking women, but Norma Hardacre came in soon after his arrival. The two ladies formed themselves into a committee of advice, 
and sent Jimmy home with most definite notions regarding the correct method of receiving Serene Highnesses. He also brought Aline the news that the committee would honour him with a visit the following morning, accompanied by Mrs. Hardacre, who had been pleased to express a desire to see his pictures. The appointed hour came, and with it the ladies. Mrs. Hardacre's lips smiled sweetly at the man who was to be taken up by a duchess and to paint the portrait of a princess. She declared herself delighted with the studio, and professed admiration for the pictures. "'Are they all really your own, Mr. Padgate?' she asked, turning towards him, her tortoise-shell lorgnon held sceptre-wise. "'I'm afraid so,' answered Jimmy, with a smile. "'Sometimes I wish they were not so much my own.' "'But I should feel quite proud of them if I were you,' said the lady, desirous to please. Connie broke into a laugh, and explained that Jimmy had implied a regret that they had found no purchasers. Mrs. Hardacre sniffed. She did not like being laughed at, especially as she had gone out of her way to be urbane. This was unfortunate for Jimmy, for though he strove hard to remove the impression that he had consciously dug a pit of ridicule for her entrapment, Mrs. Hardacre listened to his remarks with suspicion, and became painfully aware of the shabbiness of his coat. Presently she regarded one of the portraits, that of a pretty, fluffy-haired woman. "'Dear me!' she remarked somewhat frigidly. "'That is Mrs. Marmaduke Hewson!' Jimmy, in the simplicity of his heart, was delighted. "'Yes, a most charming lady. Do you know her?' "'Oh, no, I don't know her, but I know of her.' Her stress on the preposition signified even deeper and more far-reaching things than the nod of Lord Burley in the play. "'What do you know of her?' asked Jimmy bluntly. Mrs. Hardacre smiled frostily, and her lean shoulders moved in an imperceptible shrug. "'Those matters belong to the realm of unhappy gossip, Mr. Padgate, but I'm afraid the Duchess won't find her portrait attractive.' "'It is really rather a good portrait,' said Jimmy, in puzzled modesty. "'That is the pity of it,' replied Mrs. Hardacre sweetly. The victim smiled. "'Surely the private character of the subject can have nothing to do with a person's judgment of a portrait, as a specimen of the painter's art.' "'Besides, Mrs. Hewson is as dear and sweet and true a little woman as I have ever met.' "'You're not the first of your sex that has said so.' "'And I most sincerely hope I shall not be the last,' said Jimmy, with a little flush and a little flash in his eyes, and the politest of little bows. Whereupon Mrs. Hardacre bit her lip and hated him. Norma, seizing the opportunity of contributing to the final rout of her mother, unwittingly did Jimmy some damage.' "'We women ought not to have given up fancy work,' she said, in her hardest and most artificial tones. "'As we don't embroider with our fingers, we embroider with our tongues. "'You can have no idea what an elaborate tissue of lies has been woven about that poor little Mrs. Hewson. "'I agree with Mr. Padgate. I'm sorry you believe them, mother.' Jimmy's grateful glance smote her undeserving heart. She gained credit under false pretenses, and felt hypocritical an unpleasant feeling, for the assumption of unpossessed virtues was not one of her faults. She succeeded, however, in rendering her mother furious. In a very short time Mrs. Hardacre remembered an engagement, and went away in a handsome cab, refusing the seat in Connie's carriage, which was put at her disposal, on the condition of her waiting a few moments longer. She had thanked Jimmy, however, for the pleasure afforded by his delightful pictures with such politeness when he saw her into the cab, that he did not for a moment suspect that the lady who had entered the house with expressions of friendliness had driven away in a rage 
with feelings towards him ludicrously hostile. He returned to the studio at peace with all womankind, not sorry that Mrs. Hardacre had departed, but only because courtesy no longer demanded his relegating to the second sphere of his attention the divine personage of whom he felt himself to be the slave. No suspicion of Mrs. Hardacre's spiteful motive in deprecating the display of his most striking piece of portraiture ever entered his head. He ran down the studio stairs with the eagerness of a boy released from the flattering but embarrassing society of his elders and free to enjoy the companionship of his congeners. And he was childishly eager to show his pictures to Norma, to hear her verdict, to secure her approval, so that he should stand in her eyes as a person in some humble way worthy of the regard that Morland said she bestowed on him. He found his visitors not looking at pictures at all, but talking to Aline, who rushed to him as soon as he entered the studio. "'Oh, Jimmy, just fancy! Mrs. Deering is going to take me to Hallingham on Saturday, and is coming upstairs with me to see what I can do in the way of a frock. You don't mind, do you?' Jimmy looked down into the happy young face, and laughed a happy laugh. "'Mrs. Deering is an angel for the most exclusive part of heaven,' he said. And this was one of the rare occasions on which he was guilty of a double meaning. Had not the angel thus contrived an unlooked-for joy, a few minutes' undisturbed communion with his divinity? The first words that Norma spoke when they were alone were an apology. "'You must not take what my mother said in ill part. She and I have been bred, I'm afraid, in a hard school.' It was very kind of Mrs. Hardacre to warn me of the possibility of the Duchess being prejudiced against me by the exhibition of a particular portrait. I can't conceive the possibility myself. But still Mrs. Hardacre's intention was kindly. Norma turned her head away for a moment. She could not trust herself to speak, for a stinging sarcasm with just a touch of the hysterical would have been all she could utter, and she had not the heart to undeceive him. She shot into the by-path of the gossip concerning Mrs. Hewson. "'Mother believes the stories about her. So do I, in the loose sort of way in which our faith in anything is composed, even in our fellow-creatures' failings.' "'You defended her,' said Jimmy. "'You made me do so.' "'I?' "'Either you, because you carry about with you an uncomfortable palace-of-truth sort of atmosphere, or else the desire to rub it into my mother.' "'Rub what in?' Jimmy was puzzled. Norma laughed somewhat bitterly. She saw that he was incapable of understanding the vulgar pettiness of the scheme of motives that had prompted the utterances of her mother and herself. She could not explain. "'I think you are born out of your century,' she said. It was lucky for Jimmy that he was unaware of the passionate tribute the light words implied. She gave him no time to answer, but carried him straight to the pictures. "'I had no idea you did such beautiful work,' she said, looking around her. Jimmy followed her glance, and the melancholy of the artist laid its touch for a moment upon him. He sighed. "'They might have been beautiful if I'd done what I started out to do. It is the eternal tragedy of the clipped wings.' She was oddly responsive to a vibration in his voice, and gave out, like a passive violin, the harmonic of the struck note. "'Better to have wings that are clipped than to have no wings at all.' She had never uttered such a sentiment, never thought such a thought in her life before. Her words sounded unreal in her own ears, and yet she had a profound sense of their sincerity. "'There is no apterix among human souls,' said Jimmy, released from the melancholy fingers. They argued the point in a lighter vein, 
discussed individual pictures. Charmed by her sympathy, he spoke freely of his work, his motives, his past dreams. Norma not begun to know him. She might have wondered at the lack of bitterness in his talk. To this man of many struggles and many crushing disappointments, the world was still young and sweet, and his faith in the ultimate righteousness of things undimmed. The simple courage of his attitude towards life moved her admiration. She felt somewhat humbled in the presence of a spirit stronger, clearer than any into which chance had hitherto afforded her a glimpse. And as he talked in his bright, half-earnest, half-humorous way, it crossed her mind that there was a fair world of thought and emotion in which she and her light had not set their feet. Not the world entirely of poetic and artistic imaginings, but one where inner things mattered more than outer circumstance, where it would not be ridiculous or affected to think of the existence of a soul and its needs, and their true fulfilment. Hitherto meeting him as an alien in her world, she had regarded him with a touch of patronising pity. From this she was now free. She saw him for the first time in harmony with his environment, as the artist, sensitive and responsive, integral with the beautiful creations that hung around the walls, and still homely and simple, bearing the rubs of time as bravely and frankly as the old drawing-room suite that furnished the unpretentious studio. Now it was she who felt herself somewhat disconcertedly out of her element. The sensation, however, had a curious charm. There was one picture that had attracted her from the first. She stood in front of it, moved by its pity and tenderness. "'Tell me about this one,' she said, without looking at him. She divined that it was very near his heart. In the foreground, amid laughing woodland, crouched a fawn with little furry ears and stumps of horns, and he was staring in piteous terror at a vision, and the vision was that of a shivering outcast woman on a wet pavement in a sordid street. "'It is the joyous, elemental creature's first conception of pain,' said Jimmy, after a few moments' silence. "'You see, life has been to him only the sunshine and the earth drenched with colour and music, as the earth ought to be.' And now he sees a world that is coming grey with rain and misty with tears, and he has the horror of it in his eyes. I'm not given to such moralising in paint, he added with a smile. This is a very early picture. He looked at it for some time, with eyes growing wistful. Yes, he sighed. I did it many years ago. It has a history, then? Yes, he admitted and he remembered how the outcast figure in the rain had symbolised that little funeral procession in Paris, and how terribly grey the world had been. Norma's chastened mood had not awed the spirit of mockery within her, but had rendered it less bitter, and had softened her voice. She waved her hand towards the crouching fawn. "'And that is you?' she asked. Jimmy caught a kind raillery in her glance, and laughed. "'Yes, she had his secrets.' was the only person who had ever guessed him beneath the travesty of horns and goat's feet. "'I like you for laughing,' she said. "'Why?' "'Other painters have shown me their pictures.' "'Which signifies?' "'That this is one of the most beautiful pictures I have ever seen,' she replied. "'But why are you so glad that I laughed?' asked Jimmy, in happy puzzledom. "'I have told you, Mr. Padgate, all that I am going to tell you.' "'I accept the inscrutable,' said he. "'Do you believe in the old pagan joy of life?' she asked after a pause. "'I mean, 
Was there? Is there such a thing? One has heard of it. In fact, it is a catch-phrase that any portentous poseur has on the tip of his tongue. When one comes to examine it, however, it generally means champagne and oysters and an unpresentable lady, and it ends with liver and, and all sorts of things, don't you know? But you are not a poseur. I think you are the honestest man I have ever met. And yet you paint this creature as if you utterly believe in what he typifies. It would go hard with me if I didn't, said Jimmy. I can't talk to you in philosophic terms and explain all my reasons, because I have read very little philosophy. When I do try, my head gets attled. I knew a chap once who used to devour Barclay and Kant and all the rest, and used to write about them, and I used to sit at his feet in a kind of awed wonder at the tremendousness of his brain. Man called Smith, he was colossally clever, he added after a reflective pause. But I can only grope after the obvious. Don't you think the beauty of the world is obvious? It all depends upon which world, said Norma. Which world? Why, God's world. It is sweet to draw the breath of life. I love living, don't you? I have never thought of it, she answered. I shouldn't like to die, it is true, but I don't know why. Most people seem to spend two-thirds of their existence in a state of boredom, and the rest in sleep. That is because they reject my poor fawn's inheritance. I have been asking you what that is. The joy and laughter of life. They put it from them. How? They draw the soul's curtains and light the gas, instead of letting God's sunshine stream in. Norma turned away from the picture with a laugh. That reminds me of the first time I met you. You told me to go and ventilate my soul. It gave me quite a shock, I assure you. But I've been trying to follow your precept ever since. Don't you think I'm a little bit fresher? For the moment, the girl, still lingering in her five-and-twenty hard years, flashed to the surface, adorably warming the cold, finely sculptured face, and bringing rare laughter into her eyes. Jimmy marvelled at the infinite sweetness of her, and fed his poor, hungry soul thereon. "'You look like a midsummer morning,' he said unsteadily. The tone caught her, sobered her, but the colour deepened on her cheek. "'I'll treasure that as a pretty compliment,' she said. There was a little space of silence, quite a perilous little space, with various unsaid things lurking in ambush. Norma broke it first. "'Now I have seen everything, haven't I? No, there are some on the floor against the wall.' Jimmy explained their lack of value, showed her two or three. They were mostly the wasters from his picture factory, he said. She found in each a subject for admiration, and Jimmy glowed with pleasure at her praise. While he was replacing them, she moved across the studio. "'And this one?' she asked, with her finger on the top of a strainer. He looked round and followed swiftly to her side. It was her own portrait, with its face to the wall. "'I'm not going to show you that,' he said hurriedly. "'Why not?' "'It's a crazy thing.' "'I should love to see it. I tell you, it's a crazy thing,' he repeated. "'A mad artist's dream.' Norma arched her eyebrows. "'Aha! That is very like a confession.' "'Of what?' "'The idle woman?' "'Perhaps,' he said. "'I thought everything was so positive in your scheme of life,' she remarked teasingly. "'Don't you know?' "'Yes,' said Jimmy. "'I know.' 
again the vibration that Jimmy, poorest of actors, could not keep from his voice, stirred her. She felt the indelicacy of having trodden upon sanctified ground. She turned away and sat down. They talked of other matters, somewhat self-consciously. Both welcomed the entrance of Connie Deering and Aline. The former filled the studio at once with laughing chatter. She hoped Norma had not turned Jimmy's hair white with the dreadful things she must have said. "'I don't turn a hair as I'm a mere worldling, but Jimmy is an unsophisticated child of nature and isn't accustomed to you, my dear Norma.' She went on to explain that she was Jimmy's natural protectress, and that they who harmed him would have to reckon with her. Jimmy flew gaily to Norma's defence. "'And this child's garments?' he asked, indicating Aline, whose face was irradiated by a vision of splendid attire. "'Don't meddle with what doesn't concern you,' replied Connie, while she and the girl exchanged the glances of conspirators. A short while afterwards the two visitors drove away. For some time Norma responded somewhat absently to Mrs. Deering's light talk. "'I'm so glad you've taken to Jimmy,' said the latter at last. "'Isn't he a dear?' "'I remember you saying that before. But isn't it rather an odd word to use with reference to him?' said Norma. "'Odd? But that's just what he is.' Norma turned in some resentment on her friend. "'Oh, Connie, how dare we talk patronisingly of a man like that! He's worth a thousand of the empty-souled, bridge-playing people we live among.' "'But that's just why I call him a dear,' said Mrs. Deering, uncomprehendingly. Norma shrugged her shoulders, fell into a silence which she broke by risking. "'Do you know whom he is in love with?' "'Good gracious, Norma!' cried the little lady in alarm. "'You don't say that Jimmy is in love. Oh, it's spoiling me. He can't be. "'There was one picture of a woman which he would not let me see,' said Norma. "'Well?' Norma paused for some seconds before she replied. "'He called it a mad artist's dream. I have been wondering whether it was not better than a sane politician's reality.' "'What is a sane politician's reality, dear?' Connie asked, mystified. "'I am,' said Norma. Then, womanlike, she turned the conversation to the turpitudes of her dressmaker. End of chapter 9